Welcome to I'll Be There For You, a podcast about pop culture and coping. I'm your host slash producer slash snack mom, Lindsay Ennett. And uh, every episode, I talk to a funny or interesting person that I admire about a piece or two of pop culture that got them through a difficult time in their lives. Why am I doing this? Why am I subjecting you to yet another pop culture podcast? I love talking to people about the things they love and about the ways they care for themselves and the world around them when said world is quite literally on fire. If you love the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills and also care about the melting ice caps, this podcast is for you. My wonderful guest today is James Bradford, who has been entertaining crowds of literally tens of people for the past 20 years. Since signing his first record deal in 1999, he has appeared on stage in film and television, and in comedy clubs across America. He was most recently seen on the Chris Gethard show for True TV and is currently filming the HBO miniseries Mayor of Easttown. His autobiography, and I'm, I, I'm, I have some follow-up questions about this. If, uh, you <laughs> if you can't make them laugh, make them come, is releasing in 2020, as is his newest album project, Syrup. If you can't make them laugh, make them come. Have you found that to be sound advice? <laughs> well, I mean, it's <laughs> it's very specific to what was going on with me in the time period of my life that that statement references. I don't I don't know that I would advise if you're in the middle of a stand-up set and it's not going well to just sort of run off into the audience and start giving like handies. That might not go over well in this climate or any. For me personally, I've always found that if people weren't attracted to me, I would uh, use humor to try and make them become attracted to me. So it's sort of a flip on that idea. Uh, because the the real the real lived experience for me has been if I can't get them to come I just have to make them laugh. Mm. Uh, so that's what that's about. For sure. And uh, are there any? I guess give us a little preview of what's in of what's in this book and share just the cliff notes of of an anecdote or a story. Sure. Yeah, like explain to the world why they should care. <laughs> um. Yeah. I. Uh, it's funny. You know. The, I. I. Uh, presented the first, so it's it's a it will be a written text, but I'm also going to have an audio version, which is actually being released actively now in chapters. And each chapter, each audio chapter is different than the other. So some of them are sort of read straightforward to the way you would expect an audio book, but others are performed live in comedy clubs. A couple have been performed in like living rooms, ones at a coffee shop. Oh, uh, so cool. some of the chapters are a little more off the cuff than the other, even though they all originate from uh, the written text. But yeah, it's just about my life as a, a queer person who grew up in the South and uh, became hypersexual at a very young age, uh, sort of discovered sex as a coping mechanism in my early preteen years. And uh, then how I used it to as a sort of survival mechanism in my 20s when I was trying to become a professional entertainer and literally fell back on sex work to pay the bills when entertaining wasn't working. Sounds like a really important story and perspective. And, you know, as someone who kind of had the op, who is a queer person who had like the opposite, the opposite of hypersexuality at a young age happens where you have this almost arrested development in your late 20s, early 30s. I'm now in my early 30s and having like very intense celebrity crushes for the first time ever. And it's it's wild. I mean, it, it just, you know, it 
think it's important to hear from any of, of experiences. So I'm, I'm really excited to read it. Tell me a little bit about the mayor of Easttown. Well, I can tell you exactly a little bit because as recently as a few days ago, before showing up on set, we all got emails telling us to say absolutely nothing. But I can tell you that it's a, it's a new HBO miniseries. Uh, it's based on a novel and it's produced by and stars Kate Winslet. And she plays Mayor, a Delaware County, uh, Pennsylvania detective who comes home to solve a murder. But, oh, her personal mysteries and life problems get in the way. Can you stand oh, it? So a little bit Cabot Cove there, would you say? Hmm, that's an interesting I don't comparison. Your NDA here, so like. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to say having watched all, I want to say 11 seasons of that show, I'm going to say no, not even a little bit. Oh. Um, but uh, but but I like the way you're going. I let's do that show. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just do that show. That sounds great. You know what? The world needs more more murder. She wrote, and I I don't want to put it on Angela Lansbury to give it to us. She's in her nineties. She's still acting. She has given us enough. She owes us nothing. Well, I'll tell you. You know, um, so forgive me because well, you know what? Don't forgive me because I guess that's what this show is. What this podcast is all about. But my first trivia spew. Uh, I'm obsessed with the fact that. The reason that show went off the air at all is because of Friends, which surely you must know. Please don't roast me, but I did not know that. Oh, you're kidding me. So the first thing you absolutely must do, if I may um, give you an assignment, is that there is an episode of Murder, She Wrote. I, of course, I can't tell you exactly which one, but it's in a much later season, maybe the 10th season, that is a direct parody of Friends. Uh, Jessica literally goes to the set of a new sitcom that is just a parody of friends where like murder is happening on set. And they did this episode because they lost their time slot because they were competing with friends and it was the downfall of the actual show. So the writers decided to write an episode with a friends parody in it to like sort of get back at the people that made friends. It is so important to everyone's heart that they watch this episode. (laughs) I'm not even telling you that it's good. Thank I'm you. just telling you that it exists. No, thank you, James, for educating the children. This is <laughs> this is super important. We've got a lot to talk about, but after that, I think <laughs> we have to go and watch this episode of Murder She Wrote. So we'll, we'll find a time later, and I'll just um, act out the entire episode for you for 45 minutes over coffee. Please, I would love that. Next time I'm in Philly, to have to make that happen. You did want to talk about a couple of your pop culture show and tells, as it were. Um, you want to tell us what the first one is? I mean, I think I remember what I said because uh, I am obsessed with almost everything. But um, for sure, well, I can tell you that uh, I developed an obsession with singer-songwriter Tori Amos, uh, maybe around the age of 11. That has not dissipated even slightly. It's a sickness, and uh, the only cure is more Tori Amos. I completely understand. So take us into that moment, like, when you're, when 11-year-old James, like, sorry for, like, getting all Barbara Walters on you, but (laughs) the the moment when 11-year-old James first discovered Tori Amos, what were you doing... (laughs) <laughs> take us through that experience god it's so weirdly visceral because it's not like people ask you these things but i could feel it in my flesh um 
Yeah, I was sitting on the couch in Shreveport, Louisiana, where I grew up, and I was watching, I think it was 120 Minutes on MTV. It was either 120 Minutes or it was their alternative show, but it aired later because alternative music wasn't quite like the buzzword that that it became a few years later. But anyway, uh, they were playing the video for Crucify, which, like most of Tori's early videos, was just sort of a montage of striking visual imagery. Didn't necessarily tell a story. Uh, I know that Cindy, I'm going to say her name wrong. I know I am. Cindy Palmano, who did the artwork for Tori's first album, Little Earthquakes, directed all these early videos. And they were just very, they were stark videos. There was usually a black background or a white background. Many outfits were involved. And just for that brain that was developing, that was going to eventually become this brain that was obsessed with women and like a not sleeping with them wing in case that wasn't clear to everyone Um, and obsessed with uh, music in general. I mean, music is my lifeblood, Uh, but that who would also become obsessed, obsessed with things that are a little bit camp and just a little bit over the top and in your face. It was just, I, I just remember this part of the video where she sort of, She's wearing this velvet gown with a giant ruffled collar, and she plunges uh, legs first into a bathtub as water falls from the sky into the bathtub. And I just thought, oh, well, we're married now. That's what this <laughs> is forever. <laughs> so that was that was the beginning of the end. Sorry, I have to ask, what would a wedding between you and Tori Amos look like? Oh, honey, so much cake, so much lip gloss, Cornish cemetery gauze i feel like gauze and cheesecloth hanging off of branches Uh, this is just the wedding i can't even get into the marriage yet uh uh, yeah pan pan flute probably at the reception hall um but also like morrissey is there but no one's talking to him (laughs) that kind of a thing (laughs) i think that might be my favorite detail (laughs) (laughs) Morrissey is there, but no one's talking to him. Well, because we're obviously we're serving pork. So sorry. I mean, I was thinking more it's because his politics are terrible. But well, I mean, that was sort of what I was alluding to. Yes. Right. So 11 year old you is seeing this this video. It's amazing, like how far we are from that era now where like, seeing a music video alters the entire trajectory of your life. <laughs> I, I agree. I uh I mean, so I turned 41 on February 6th, so I'm still 40 for a little bit longer. But I, I am actively at that point where I'm noticing everything feels different and somehow worse. <laughs> so <laughs> sometimes I'll click on that YouTube uh, trending thing thinking something in this list of 20 videos is going to be something that I relate to. And it'll just be, you know, a person whose name is essentially emoji and uh, characters. And the, and the music video is just sort of them standing in a room sulking. And I know, I know I'm old and I know I sound like I'm old. And, but I just, I just, yeah, you just want, I just want to take everyone involved and be like, oh, no one told you what's great. And I, I feel so bad for you, Um, which is not to say there's nothing fantastic coming out of the people who are they in the now. But uh, yeah, it's, it's not, it's also, it's not a, um, it's not an unfurling. I mean, there was a time 20 odd years ago when it was like, Oh, there's a, well, Michael Jackson's problematic, but it's the for Madonna. We'll go with Madonna. A new Madonna video is coming out and it's a 24 hour extravaganza on MTV and VH1. They're having a live event at a New York club and they're going to debut the video, which to be clear, as we all know, 
will last three minutes and 37 seconds, but they've spent the entire day. And I know in retrospect, it was all just a massive advertising ploy to get you to go out and buy the album or more likely pay a penny for it and seven other albums from BMG Record Club. But be that as it may, it felt like you were experiencing a really important event in music history. And then, of course, you would get the album and the other 10 tracks would be absolute garbage. But that one moment in time, it did. It felt, uh, it felt, you felt a connectivity to the other 10 million people that were watching it. And now it's just sort of like, mm, Beyonce put out a video last night, y'all. God, my heart hurts saying that. No offense to Beyonce. Please don't kill me, Bayhive. I will not sick the Bayhive on you. The thing about Beyonce is so, I think there are so few artists that can create that kind of, use music videos to create that kind of communal moment we had with with MTV video premieres in our in our youth and Beyonce is one of them like i was scrolling through twitter it was i think easter sunday and my whole family was watching a hockey game and i tried to convince them to turn it off and put on hbo so we could all watch lemonade together <laughs> how did that go <laughs> it did did not go well but but beyonce is i think lemonade is is an incredible cinematic feat when i I refer to it as our generation's purple rain, but um, I could see that. I could see that. I mean, yeah, of course, Beyonce was a terrible example. It's just the first person I thought of as someone who sort of drops content without the big fanfare that I, that we experienced back in the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, Beyonce creates pieces of full on artwork with everything that she puts out, but but it's it's yeah. It's, I just don't pull from a lot of the content that's... And another part of it, too, is that it, it, there's content constantly. Again, I sound like an ancient person, but how do you even dig through and find the gems when it's just 24 hours a day? There's all these people releasing content that they've rushed to put out. And also technology, for me anyway, and this relates kind of directly back to Tori, uh, technology had a huge impact on my connection with Tori Amos because there were message boards and websites, you know, fan sites and the forums. And um, Tori was the first artist to release a new single digitally in oh. uh, MP3 format. It was 96. It was her song, Caudalite's Knees. And so it was like, now it's not even a matter of waiting for a digital release. It's like, it's already leaked two weeks before it was supposed to be released anyway. Everybody's already streaming it. It just somehow the fanfare has gone away. So talk to me a little bit about the finding the Tori Amos fan community and building those relationships. How did you relate to it? How did it, what kind of impact did it have on you? God, in, in, in retrospect, it, it was a fascinating experience. Uh, I, I can't tell you that I can remember exactly when I discovered it. I'd probably say like around 1995, just before Boys for Pele came out. I was right about the right age to start going to concerts. And I just, I, so it was this is where like all the mental health stuff comes in. I had just moved from Shreveport, Louisiana to the Washington, D.C. metro area. My mother had been diagnosed with terminal cancer and... uh my father had just taken a new job in a different area. So we just moved and I didn't know anyone, but we were living in the town that Tori Amos grew up in. Uh, just, I mean, honestly, a coincidence. I don't think I could have ever talked to my father into manipulating that. But so I, I was, uh, it just became an all-encompassing obsession for me in my late teens. 
the church that her father preached at was the church where my mother was going to sort of like bereavement. Um, what's the word? Like group therapy for people who were bereaved of their own illness. So he was like a pastor at that church. And I started, so I started meeting people who had uh, tangential connections to her. And I'm not, I'm not going to name names, but I met this uh, guy who had essentially been following her on tour for the last two and a half, three years. And he invited me to come see a show in Baltimore uh, that weekend. And this was the do drop in tour. So it was right around 96. That was the first time I actually met other fans in like a group and saw the sort of what's, what's the polite term for insane devotion. (laughs) It was just a uh, stannery. I don't know. Yeah, it was a, it was a, well, so they had a name for themselves, which is Ears with Feet. I don't know if you're familiar. Um, <laughs> Tori had released a, a, an audio snippet, uh, or maybe she had said it into someone's like hand recorder because this was way before smartphones. But anyway, she had said, I don't call my fans fans. I call them Ears with Feet. So that became the name for the Tori Miss Fan community was the Ears with Feet. And they were just all, they all knew each other. And there was only like maybe 40 people because she had these meet and greets before and after every show of her tour. And, you know, in your mind, you think of, you know, a sort of swarm of insane over the top fans for someone. But this is just a polite line of like 40 people. They all knew each other's first name. They had seen each other on other tours. They related to each other beyond just the music because, of course, Tori's music touched on sexual assault. And so that was a big theme for a lot of people in the community as a shared experience. And uh, it was just this it was so supportive. You, you could show up and you could talk about what was going on in your life or something you were struggling with. And there was absolutely someone else in that line going through the same thing whether they were there to commiserate or just listen uh it just became like a massive healing experience that almost was removed from the fact that you were about to like give Tori Amos a hug before or after one of her shows and get her to sign a CD and so I went to this first one with this guy I'll never forget he was a, a lovely older man who was also just an absolute hot mess of a person. So he, he had previously followed the Grateful Dead and he oh, was sort yeah. of, yeah, he was, he was having that Grateful Dead tour experience now with Tori. And so all the security guards knew who he was and knew him by name. And I remember when we showed up in Baltimore in line, they were like, all right, buddy, now keep it under five minutes this time. <laughs> I just remember thinking, oh, no, what have I gotten myself into with this? But it was, by and large, totally fine. And I I did meet Tori that day. Um, I was a chubby, I guess I was around 17, 96. Yeah, I was 17. I I have a picture, so I know that this is accurate. I was wearing a vintage white polyester shirt from the 70s with blue pineapples and then a vintage 70s military jacket over it with blue denim uh, bell bottoms. And as soon as she saw me, you know, like the person in front of me cleared out and she saw me in line. She was like, oh, groovy threads, dude. And like <laughs> for a chubby sort of acne marked kid with terrible dyed red hair. I don't think hygiene was at the top of my list at that time in my life. It was a, a 
revelatory. It was like, again, it was like, oh, I was right. We're, we're fully married now and we have a baby on the way. That's what this is. And she gave me a hug and she, and then I, and then I joined this guy who, again, I'm not going to name him because I don't want to be a dick, but I joined him in, on like four more shows and uh, became a little bit of a groupie for like, for like, I don't know, a month and a half. Can you be a groupie for a month and a half? <laughs> Uh, I, I don't know the, the rules. The rules, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think groupie might be the wrong term because I was not getting laid, that's for sure. But definitely, I was an ear with feet. for, And then I'm, I'm visualizing all the photographs that we took during that time, like in my head. I should, say, I should email them to you. Please, if you have one of you and Tori specifically. Oh, yeah, I have a bunch. I have a bunch. My favorite is there's this set of two that were taken within a second of each other because in one... We, we were stepping on each other's feet, so our faces are in this horrible grimace of pain. And then the next one is one second later when we were like, like ah, shit, but we're on camera. So we're like smiling really big, as if we had not just wounded one another. You were an ear with feet for for a time. You talk a lot about the, you know, the communal experience of, of waiting in line and connecting with these fans who her music, you know, resonates deeply with. I'd love to hear more about the show itself. You know, Teenage You, seeing Tori perform these songs that you loved so much and that were present during very trying time. Yeah, I'll tell you, I'll tell you like two separate stories. I'll tell you the the, the first show that I saw, which is in Baltimore, and I'll tell you about one that I saw roughly a year later that is probably one of the most epic moments of my entire life. So the thing is, uh, Tori was just super, super blowing up, right? Cornflake Girl was probably her biggest hit uh, or the most recognizable hit in the 90s. Uh, it came out in 94. It was a huge hit in Europe and in America, it was a bit of a lesser hit. So I started getting into the tour scene in 96 with Boys for Pele. It was a do drop in tour. And um, the songs, that album was blowing up uh, in America primarily because of dance remixes, which nobody saw coming. And uh, it, I got in just at the time when you could still actually go to these concerts and have a very small crowd, small being relative. Obviously, it wasn't like, you know, a nightclub. That first concert in Baltimore, I uh, my mother was right at the end of life. And uh, I, I, I remember just being in the auditorium, just silent. I just didn't speak <laughs> I didn't woo. I didn't applaud. Uh, there were times when everyone stood up, and so I stood up as well. But beyond that, it was just a couple tears, but mostly just a trance, being in a trance. Uh, it was like nothing I had ever experienced. It was transcendent musical moment um, because she just owned this every inch of the stage. There's one point where she did an interpretive dance during the instrumental intro to a song, which I would come to find out was something she was doing at every show. But for me in that moment, it was like, oh, that dance is that's for me. And just, uh, yeah, there was no there's no words to describe being fully absorbed into a performance. Um, she really made and to this day, I think, makes people feel like that show that night is only happening that night that set list is that night the way the songs are being performed that night and she's spoken of the fact that that's very intentional on her part that she sort of feels like she psychically feels out the audience for every show 
comes up with the set list that day in the in that moment. And I think, you know, she has a reputation for being a little airy-fairy, hippy-dippy, and maybe that's a little bit accurate. But I think in terms of her artistry, that's very real for her. And you definitely connect to that. And there are obviously there are people who abhor what she does and are never going to feel that. And I respect that. If you can't connect, you can't connect. But when you do, it's it's everything. But all I remember is just absolute dead silence. And I honestly, I don't remember anybody making any noise besides the occasional applause. Things changed a few years, just a few years later, when she blew up on such a huge scale for like a five-year period, you would go to a concert and it was like, you know, between every song, it was somebody yelling out the song they wanted to hear next. Or, I love you, Tori! That's a much more like general concert experience. And I think, again, it can be attributed to the fact that her audience just expanded so much. But in this time, it was just a silent group experience. And uh, I mean, I can I can close my eyes and like feel myself being in that moment. Now, the other concert experience that I would relay um, is, <laughs> so it's about a year later, and I've gone to maybe 10 shows. And in this period of her of her career, I mean, obviously, she couldn't remember every face that she saw. But when she would interact with certain people repeatedly, she would remember them at these meet and greets. And because I had initially met her through this guy that I mentioned before, who had been on like a hundred shows for her tour, she knew me by name at this point at these, these meet and greets. And at this particular show, I guess it wasn't a full year later. It was like late 1996. I had written her a letter and it was the first time I'd actually written her a letter as opposed to just like, hi, Tori, hug, photo, that kind of thing. And I talked about how my mother had passed away and a little bit touched on like growing up queer in the South, which is a whole other conversation. Uh, But one of the things I said in this letter (laughs) is that I had a crush on her guitarist, Steve Caton. Um, And anyone who's listening, you can Google Steve. He was with Tori musically for over a decade. They were actually in a hair metal band together in 1987 called Why Can't Tori Read? So she had known him for quite a long time. And it was just like, God help me. I can't remember the whole thing. But I said something like, you know, oh, Steve, the way you hold your guitar on stage, I wish I could be that guitar. (laughs) And it um, it was like a mash note. It was a mash note for sure. So so I gave it to her and just didn't really think anything of it. And um, we sat down for the show. And I believe I was that guy. That guy was there with me, uh, the the deadhead. And we were sitting sort of in the center. It was a fairly small venue. In fact, it was, oh, I remember. I remember it was um, Binghamton, New York. And it was a college auditorium. So I don't know. You're like less than a thousand people for sure. Um and we were sort of center middle. And uh, at one point she came up for the encore and she brought Steve Caton on stage with her. Oh, and no. she, <laughs> Oh yeah. So she's um, sort of dragging him by the arm to the middle of the stage. And she's looking at, out into the crowd. And then she points directly at me and starts whispering into his ear. No. And I'm like, I just completely died. I was like, Oh, fuck me. No, 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 no. Um, like, but also complete excitement. And, uh, and yeah, and then, then they sat down and they did um, uh, the song that I had requested in my letter, which was a song, a song called Butterfly. <laughs> and there's actually a recording of this somewhere because somebody had bootlegged it. Uh, uh, and then afterwards, I, I refused to go to the meet and greet afterwards. I was like, nope, nope, I can't. I can't do it because I was so embarrassed. But it was definitely one of the most thrilling moments of my life. Yeah. 
That's both mortifying and incredible. (laughs) I mean, it's cool, like, listening to you talk about her and and especially about that first show. It's really amazing. And I don't know if I see it as much now where you... It feels, and maybe it's just also a product of being young and like connecting to everything. So like everything, you feel things so much more. And especially when you're, whether it's mental health issues or navigating being closeted or horrible stuff with your family where you, you know, retreat into music and to have an artist feel like everything is happening to you and for you in that moment. Yeah, completely. I mean, it's it's also, I mean, it's sort of the intellectual versus the emotional. I mean, intellectually, even in that moment, you know, like, okay, yes, obviously I'm not being given a private serenade by Tori Amos, but emotionally, you feel like this has been designed, this whole moment and experience has been designed for me and to help me heal and to help me feel my way through things. And uh, I mean, I would say that Tori's music, and to be fair, there's some Bjork and Cindy Lauper stuff that was going on at the same time, although not on not on the scale. Like I wasn't going on to see I them in concert. A, I wish we had another hour to talk about Bjork. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> uh, I wish we had another galaxy to talk about Bjork. Um, yes, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean the uh, it, yeah, it was just oh god, it was just everything fell into place. The the way that the internet worked at the time allowing people to pour over lyrics and sort of talk about like lyrical meaning and the fact that fan zines were like happening. So there was like a monthly, you know, fan magazine that you could get mailed out to you talking about everything that was happening in Tori Amos's career, all of this stuff, sort of the stars aligned to make it therapeutic in the way that it was. And I do feel like youth might have something to do with it. I think we tend to, as we get older, lose our motivation to delve into things as deeply as we did before. And maybe that's a sad thing that we have to be more um, active in solving for ourselves. But, but definitely, yeah, it was, uh, it was important to me. If I had not had access to that, I don't know who I would have become. Uh, I mean, I, I can tell you, I have uh, since been diagnosed with clinical depression and PTSD, and I never really had that diagnosis at that time in my life, but it was certainly something that I was going through. And I think quite literally her music was a form of therapy and working through it. First of all, just on a, on a personal note, I'm glad that you're, you know, getting the, the support that you need. That's super important. And with all that in mind, what's your relationship like with to Tori Amos's music and that community now? Well, in terms of the community, it's it's such a different animal. The internet is so different. Uh, you know, the the main Tory website has been down for quite some time. It's archived, but I think for at least a decade it hasn't been updated. And they had a offshoot of it that was created that hasn't been updated in at least a year. The main fan forums are shut down. The Reddit group is really inactive. So it's weird because it's not as if she doesn't still have millions of fans, but for whatever reason, it was this just sort of singular moment when it all happened. You know, I'd say from like 94 to 98 or even 2000, where it all came together in that way, but it just doesn't exist in that way anymore. And I would say, truthfully, I don't really have a connection to any sort of fan community anymore. 
I don't know that I feel sad about that. It's just sort of a transition into how things work. But it's it's and if, I feel like if someone tried to make it happen now, it wouldn't be the same. It would feel forced. Uh, in terms of the music, um, I still feel as connected to it as I always did. I have to admit, I listen to the older stuff more than I do the newer stuff. But we also have to be fair and say Tori Amos is a 55-year-old woman now. She has grown and changed from who she was in 1996. It would be sick to expect her to be the exact same artist. Um, and I am not going through the same things that I was going through at that time. So I'm relating to what she does on an adult level in a different time in my life. And it's I still get great pleasure from it. what she does. I don't. I guess I don't have to rely on it therapeutically anymore. Uh, although, by the same token, if I'm having a shitty day, the first thing I'm going to do is put on voice for Pele and listen to it from start to finish. Uh, and it's it still helps me the same way that it did 20-odd years ago. So True. The music that... I think the music that we come across in our adolescence is the music that sticks with us forever, whether we wanted to or not, whether it like, for me, that artist is Dashboard Confessional, which is probably a lot to unpack with someone I'm conversing with for the first time. But <laughs> but the, you're right, like after, like, after a really shitty day, sometimes you, you know, want to listen to what you loved and connected with in your teen years and just like get it all out and you feel better. You do. And, and also, you know, if I, I could put on, you know, Father Lucifer from Voice for Pele and listen to it, and I can remember who I'm not uh, in terms of who I was when I listened to it 20 odd you know, in 1996, yeah. I can, uh, I can connect with who that person was and see how far I've come. Uh, I also, so, okay. So dashboard confessional, I feel like I only know one song by them. Did they do screaming infidelities? Yes. Yeah. I used to DJ in new Orleans and I used to have that song on rotation, just tangentially little tidbit for you. So I remember um, that. I just want to know in what context, like like a live DJ or like a radio DJ? Oh, oh, a, a, a club DJ. <laughs> I was a DJ in a, it was a gay leather club in the French Quarter called Rawhide 2010. And uh, they, they hired me specifically to DJ on the weekends and play only rock and metal because they wanted to be like a butch masculine leather bar. <laughs> So they didn't want any more dance or pop music. So they, and it was actually a nightmare. I don't want to go on and on and on about it, but they, this was 2000, 99, 2000, I don't know. Uh, the internet was slow. Uh, and so, and videos took forever to download, but they didn't want to pay to get access to the videos. So I had to download these videos and burn them on this to DVDRs to play at the club. Cause I was, I was spinning videos, not music. Anyway, it was a hell. It was an absolute hell. And, um, but I do remember that song. <laughs> oh my God. I just like bless you for even if this isn't exactly how it happened, like leaving me today with the image of a bar full of leather daddies belting out screaming infidelity. <laughs> well, you're welcome. It was my pleasure. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, so unfortunately we're almost out of time, although I could talk to you about this stuff forever. But uh, one question I always like to ask people that come on the show 
is what is something outside of pop culture that you do to practice self or community care? Well, I'm terrible at it. Um, <laughs> I really, really am terrible at it. And I, I say that not as a judgment on myself, but as something that I recognize about myself. Self-care is really difficult for me. But I mean, I can give you a, a real specific one. I uh, uh, Compulsive overeating has been something I've struggled with as well. And uh, through therapy, I discovered um, that uh, a really, really important sort of self-care device for me is to uh, not restrict, right? Because a lot of times when people have an eating disorder of any kind, restriction is a tool to feeling like you have control over it. And it sort of, you restrict and you trick yourself into thinking that, the active restriction is self-care when in fact it can be extremely harmful. And so what I have learned is that a real act of self-care for me is to allow within reason and within moderation. Um, and this kid doesn't have to go for just food. It can go for anything, right? Anything that you feel like you overindulge in. Uh, so for me, it's a matter of like being at the grocery store and not saying, no, 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 you can't have donuts. Donuts are bad for you. And instead saying, girl, you want a donut? Get you a cute donut. And A, donut and then you take that home and you eat that donut and you love that donut but you don't have seven more afterwards and uh that would be an example of one of the sort of very uh, concrete self-care skills i've developed since you asked <laughs> oh, i i think that's i think that's important i actually you know i i follow god again we could talk about this for hours i follow soccer and figure skating both oh. religiously. And so I follow a lot of athletes. And that's one thing I always hear them talking about when they talk about like their nutrition and fitness regimens is I don't deny myself anything because that just creates an unhealthy relationship with it. It does. And at the end of the day, if I, if, you know, using the donut, if I, if I tell myself I can't have that donut, I'm going to go home and I'm going to binge eat something else and have five times more of the other thing than the one thing that I wanted. And that's sort of counterproductive, right? Right. James Bradford, thank you so much for being one of our first guests on I'll Be There For You Season 2. It was an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Is there anything else you have coming up that you want to plug or that we should know about? Uh, well, you know, just if, if you go to jamesbradford.net, you can uh, click on any of the little linky winkies and they will tell you what's going on. I swear I should put a calendar up. I, I can be seen usually performing on the East Coast, uh, anywhere from New York through down to Philly. Uh, but anywhere that has a check, I'm willing to perform. And I am working on a new album. It's called Syrup. It's 11 songs. And uh, as you mentioned, my Biography is coming out, oh Lord, in May. <laughs> uh, the, 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 the printed copy comes out in May. It's called If You Can't Make Them Laugh, Make Them Come, uh, which they wanted to fight about. They wanted it to be If You Can't Make Them Laugh, Get Them Off. And I was like, oh, okay, because that's, that's so much better. Um, uh, but you can listen to the audio chapters as they release through my Patreon, which is linked through my website. And we will put all those links in the show notes. Uh, anywhere else that people can find you online? Oh, Lord. I mean, the best thing to do is follow the links from my website because, like, it'll take you to the Internet database and the YouTube. And the in I think I'm James Bradford Music on Instagram. I'm James E. Bradford on Twitter. Great. James, thank you so much. Uh, this has been another episode of I'll Be There For You. We release new episodes every other Sunday to help you combat those Sunday scaries. 
You can find the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Uh, We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. If you want to do like James did and be a guest and talk about your thing that helped you cope, we would love to have you. Just uh, reach out with pitches, questions, haiku, anything you want to I'll be there for you pod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and take care, everybody. Bye. Let's jump into these snacks. <laughs>